learning about that where a student came up and talked about how they wish America was a socialist country. Just the idea that made me uncomfortable kind of brought up stuff with Bernie Sanders and, you know, things I've heard of my own experience on a college campus from when I got my college degree. And I guess I wanted to explore more about why does that make me uncomfortable? Because if it really came down to it, I have not been in a position to be able to defend myself and stand my ground with an educated working knowledge of the subject to be able to hold a conversation with someone about it. What is it? What is the history of it? How has it played out in societies in the past? Where do the ideas come from? All of those things together is probably why, like in every subject that I plan on going through in this podcast, a good reason to jump in because if I'm uncomfortable, it's probably due to some level of ignorance and or an appropriate level of fear for something I'm not totally ignorant to. But at the very least, the only option at the end of the day is to get educated on the subject. Let's let's dive in, figure out what it is, how to have a conversation about it. And once we can open up that door, see what's on the other side and get a ground feel for the facts and what we're really looking at. That's going to create some ground for conversation and it's going to take away some of that fear where, as in most subjects, as we've seen so far in our podcast, that when you scratch past the surface and you have some dialogue on it and you know what you're talking about, you start to find that society is not nearly as divided as you might think. To have an original thought on a subject, I don't believe being an expert in it is a prerequisite we can move past ignorance and get out of the clutches of politicians by creating our own original thoughts with a little bit of extra legwork. And today I'm hoping I've been able to put together a working knowledge and something that's easily digestible for listeners to be able to take that next step that I've been wanting to take for a long time. Now, it occurred to me that as I was reading into these different examples of what socialism is, what capitalism is, all of this kind of stuff that at face value, when you're reading about the generic principles, if you're not an economic expert, if you're not a civil rights expert, if you don't have that big picture, long term historical view about humanity and the ebbs and flows of rights and violence and revolution over time, it is definitely helpful to have an expert that can interpret those key principles for you and tell you what that looks like over time because, and what the dangers of that might be. It's very important to know and something that you may not see right off the bat. So the idea that the people that control the means of production, i.e. corporations, business owners, and things of that nature in our, econ our capitalist economy today are only out for profit, will never have the best interest of the worker at the forefront, and will always abuse the worker, and that the worker is being abused because they're working for a wage as opposed to working for something that they can immediately use, is the socialist argument there. And that, that because the worker is being paid a wage, the people that control the means of production can force laborers to produce a surplus and then profit from that surplus. And then profit being that driving factor will lead to more power, more corruption, 
more disparity between the high class and the low class, the working class and the ownership class. So it's important to note that socialism by itself does not completely restrict the ownership of private property, although it does severely hinder it. Private property that would be owned in a socialist economy would be things like individual goods. You could own the food that you have in your house. You could own a product, but you couldn't own the means to create that product. Like we talked about earlier with farming equipment, I could, or uh, this podcast, I might be able to own my microphone, but I may not be able to own the podcasting website that controls distribution of the different podcast episodes. I might not be able to own the factory and all the workers and the technology to create the microphone that I own. So it's, it's creates monopolies. It creates government control and it takes away the profit incentive as opposed to capitalism, which is, is a much more simple concept or if it's not a more simple concept, perhaps it's, if it is, perhaps it's more simple because that's the economy that we're used to. And that's the economy that I've known. It's almost hard to imagine an economy that's not capitalism. That's what really requires the in-depth study because it's not something that I've lived out. So in a capitalist society, profit is the incentive whatever the market says is needed, what the prices show, the, the value of labor goes up and down based on the value of the product that the labor produces. And so the market itself becomes this living organism that determines the ebbs and flow of, of how society overall will do, of the country's economy, of how wealth and goods and services is distributed across a population. And this is the world that we live in today. The government takes a back seat. And in general, we consider in a capitalist society, the state interest to be secondary to the individual interest. As a citizen, the individual citizen has the right to own property, own the means of production, start a business. So the main difference here being the difference between equality of opportunity as opposed to equality of outcome. And in a capitalist society, we, we aim to give everybody an equal opportunity to make the best of themselves. Everybody, we want everybody as much as possible to have an equal opportunity to become a capitalist and to succeed in life and achieve their goals and dreams and whatever they're looking to get out of life financially. And we believe that profit is the best incentive for that. If you put a, a product out and it's not selling and you're not making money doing it, then the market is telling you that this is not something that society needs right now. It's not something that is wanted. And the incentive there is it forces you, okay, I have to redirect. I have to figure out what, what do I need to do to grow? How can I make my product better? How can I remarket, get more advertising, change what I'm doing? and adjust to be able to fit into the market and find what the market needs in that the market overall fluctuates of its own volition in that nature, as opposed to in a socialist economy where the government is 
there is no supply and demand necessarily organically provided to go off of, but that it is that central committee deciding this is what we're going to produce. It's not about if this is making money or not. We're going to produce this and we're going to distribute this. Which leads us into some of the drawbacks here. One of the main drawbacks with both both of them is that you need to go into it with an understanding of that they're not perfect. And I feel like a lot of the arguments I hear from either side of it, perhaps ignorant arguments, maybe I'm just not listening to the right arguments, but there is no argument to make for any economic system to be perfect. Now, as a person who is more conservative, who has a capitalist point of view, I believe in America, I believe America is the greatest country in the world, our economy is great, and we're enjoying a luxury that very few throughout the course of human history have been able to enjoy. And that's something to appreciate and gain perspective on. You also need to take it with a grain of salt that it's not perfect. There are winners and there are losers. And that's not to say that people are just destined to be losers, but that when you look at things like equality of outcome, it's not everybody rises to the level of success and prosperity. It's everybody falls to the lowest level of living. And you really don't have to take, take it too far or dig too far into the examples of socialism to see how that could play out where when you're talking about equality, you're not, a, and, and we're imagining this equality of outcome utopia where everybody has exactly what they need all the time and no one, nobody has to worry. I don't think that that is possible in this life and, and working with humanity and what we're doing. And I think today in our society is a great, is a great example of that. I mean, what, what, what you would say, if we're sitting down and having a conversation, what you would say you need to survive in life right now in a face-to-face -face conversation in America, 2023 is going to be a vastly different list than what I'm going to say I need to survive and what I need in a day or what level of comfort I feel entitled to, or what would constitute a human right and what would not. I mean, we have debates about those things all the time. So it really comes down to a matter of how much do you trust your government? Because if you're talking about socialism, you've got to have a level of trust in your government that that government is going to be the best, that small central committee is going to be the best equipped group of people to determine what society as a whole needs at any given time and who needs it most and how it's going to be distributed and how much to produce of it and when to zig instead of zag in the market in every field of industry. And that's a little bit of a scary thought, especially when you look at the polls of what exactly trust in our government looks like for the average American citizen today on either side of the aisle. Um, I believe those numbers are at an all time low on how many people trust the government to be doing what the government was intended to do. So Obviously, one of the drawbacks to capitalism is that there are people in poverty and that not everybody does succeed and not everybody does become a capitalist. And that's a tough reality. But again, it's an oversimplification. And that goes into debates of, you know, what it is, is poverty and the 
lower quality of life in our nation a result of not having what is needed? Is it a result of a lack of motivation, a result of scarcity, of mental health, more than resources? Uh, and I'm not trying to posit any of those specific examples in this podcast necessarily, although I do have my own personal opinions. I'm just bringing those examples out because again, we're all human beings in a free society and your difference of, uh, your difference of opinion is, is valued. And how do, we, how do we balance the scales between what you feel like you need to live and what I feel like I need to live? Because those are gonna be different things. And we're experiencing life in a capitalist society now where is it perfect? No, but give it, give some credit where it's due of, of humanity has never achieved this level of prosperity across the board. If you follow the tracks of, of the numbers on what poverty looks like throughout human history, what life expectancy, what prosperity in really any measurable category looks like, it is impossible to argue that we are not at the peak today. And so that is something to consider when you're looking at different economic models. Now, that's going to lead into what, what is the argument we're looking at today? Because it's important to note that really the argument that we're looking at today is not an argument between should we have a socialist society or should we have a capitalist society? That is a gross oversimplification. What we're, that argument has been had, it's been decided, and the world at large has, has moved past that. The few countries that are still practicing what could be considered the purest form of socialism, even, in, even right now, are not, are not purely social socialist countries. Things like China, um, Laos, Vietnam, North Korea being the worst example of those would probably be the closest thing to a purely socialist country. And all of those have made significant steps towards capitalist economy, just with a lot more state intervention than, say, America or Denmark or Canada will have provided into the economy. So... It's important to note that the argument is more nuanced than that. The argument is not necessarily, do we want to have a socialist economy or not? The argument is how much government intervention is appropriate to give us the best chance of success across all classes of people. And that's a tough argument to have. The vast majority of industrialized countries in the world today are mixed economies, meaning they are primarily capitalist countries that believe in a free market because that has been the proven method to the most economic success and are trying to find the right balance between how much does the government need to be involved. So there's a difference between a socialist economy and socialist institutions within an economy. America is a capitalist economy that has socialist institutions in it. For example, Medicare, Medicaid. For example, I work in the field of social services and the tax dollars that get distributed to people with developmental disabilities so that they can live their life with 
And those are those are government tax dollars being handed out to care for the less advantaged in our society and try to lift everyone up to a higher quality of life if they're unable to provide that for themselves. Things like welfare, unemployment, different different social safety nets of varying degrees in our country. So and most countries have that. It, it's how much do we want our government to be involved? Even, you know, like when we hear Bernie Sanders or, or different people in that realm talking about democratic socialism, it's important to note that the typical narrative going on is the Scandinavian paradise of democratic socialism. When in reality, in my journey of reading up on this and, and leading into it, and I, I do my due diligence in looking at both sides of this, and I'm going to share them in my show notes, um, exactly where I went and where you can start that journey for yourself. Denmark is actually measurably ranked higher than the United States of America as a free market economy. And they encourage as much as possible that the economy be as open and free from government interference as much as possible. So to say that there's this Scandinavian democratic socialism going on is really to say that they may have more social safety nets in place, which, you know, already now we're talking about something that the veil is torn away. We can look each other in the eyes and realize like, oh, okay, well, that's some reasonable common ground that we can have some debate over. What does it look like? to have an economy where more people can succeed, where the homeless population is going down instead of up, where everybody has food on the table, where people are able to find a job and build a purpose in their life and have a home and things like that. And that really led into probably the most interesting resource that I found on this, which is uh, an article in the New York Times by David Brooks. And he really does a great job of diving into the complicated nuance of this argument and how is actually kind of a liberal perspective, but rewriting the narrative on like from someone like me who walked into the subject fairly ignorant, not knowing a whole lot about it, just spent several hours diving into it. And you start with the basics and then you get into understanding like, oh, the deeper I get, kind of the bigger and more complicated this whole issue is. And he really talks about how this mixed economy is where most of the world today is. He's got all the numbers to back it up. He's got real life examples that he walks you through and really makes it accessible to the average reader like myself. And he talks about how socialist policies and programs within a mixed economy can be used to increase capitalism. So it's not an argument that we are looking for a socialist economy. It's an argument that how much socialist inclusions in the government and interference can be used to give everyone a better opportunity to become the most successful capitalist that they can be. And in a capitalist society, really what we're looking at is, is creating that opportunity for people. It doesn't necessarily mean that capitalism is broken if we have a homeless population. It means how do we grease the wheels of capitalism and make it easier for everybody to get there, which does tie into things like the critical race theory when we went over before, you know, in the 1619 project where we're talking about the sharecropper that 
was being discriminated against and won his court case. And all of those sharecroppers that where, where that happens, you know, there are decided, legitimate instances of discrimination. And that's where as a society, we generally agree, this has been worked out in court, there's evidence to back this up, discrimination is happening, and government needs to interfere to create laws and policies put in place to create more equal opportunity for everyone to create the best life for themselves, which is totally different than there's discrimination happening. So the government is going to take over agriculture as an industry and remove profit as an incentive and now control the means of production for all agriculture in America to ensure that everybody gets to eat. And the real argument there being that from a capitalist perspective, that relying on a small group of politicians to run every industry in the market and account for fluctuations without any real numbers on supply and demand and without any real market to go off of to see like, okay, this doesn't need to be put into the market and this does. To put that level of trust in a small group will actually drastically increase poverty in our country as opposed to reducing it. It won't create a more equal playing field for everybody. It will it will create even more disparity and that it does lend itself to corruption because when there is scarcity, then it is the politicians that are the first to get that distribution of wealth. And it opens everybody up to bribing politicians so that they can eat and they can get whatever is limited availability as opposed to capitalism where you know how can we grease the wheels how can government interfere just enough to ensure that there's an equal and level playing field for everyone to have a fair chance at becoming the best capitalist possible so recommendations I started the resources that I jumped into were uh, a New York article and so the resources that I started with and really spent a lot of time in were from a variety of different places, one from either side of the argument. Granted, it's pretty difficult once you get into real academic sources, it's it's fairly difficult to find any serious stance supporting pure socialism. It's really more about that what we would more call democratic socialism, more of the Scandinavian model of way heavier um, social safety nets in place, things like universal health care and maybe even universal basic income, things like that. But that also come with a much heavier tax rate where most of your money is going to be going to the government to pay for those kind of things. So it's a trade-off, but that's where debate can happen. So it really wasn't finding resources on the other side advocating that we should turn into a purely socialist economy. It was resources on both sides of how much government intervention is necessary and what is appropriate and beneficial and, and what is proven not to be and what direction is the world at large going in these policies. We talk about North Korea is probably the most extreme example of pure socialism and they're one of the only countries left on the planet that regularly experiences famine and starvation and citizens don't have internet access and it's nothing but propaganda and dictatorship and I mean, that's a totally different planet out there. So 
it's important to keep that perspective and understanding when we're using terms like socialism and how that can be so easily tied into and lend itself toward totalitarian government regimes. When you're talking about the government controlling the means of production, that is naturally going to lend itself to an overreach of government power that becomes tyrannical. So you, you can see that throughout history and you want to be aware of that, how you know there's a difference between government control and the economy, but, but socialism and communism typically do go hand in hand as, as history has shown. So something to keep in mind. So I'm going to direct you to and leave in my show notes the different resources that I went to an article by David Brooks from the New York Times, which I believe you can read for free. I did uh, a monk debate that includes both sides that again that is talking more about democratic socialism and the role of government and how it should play best into a capitalist society and i am going to leave with one book recommendation because uh, dr jordan peterson is an absolute hero of mine and i know he can be a divisive figure so i'm not meaning to you know if he's not your person that's fine but he didn't write this book so um this is a book by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a survivor of the Gulag Archipelago and, and, and wrote a book called the Gulag Archipelago. He was a survivor of the Gulag in Soviet Russia under Stalin. And that book, it, Dr. Jordan Peterson recommends, uh, says it should be required reading for every American citizen. I thoroughly agree. I learned a lot from reading it. They do have an abridged version and it's a Russian translation, but for the translation that was done, it doesn't read like something like it doesn't read as if something that was very heavily Russian and then doesn't translate well into English. It reads pretty smooth and it's kind of the Russian Holocaust and it is absolutely devastating and terrifying to read. And you know, that kind of stuff is very important when we're talking about economies that especially such extreme economic ideas that do tie in with and lend itself toward extreme government structures. It's important to know the gravity of the situation of exactly what it is we're debating, because with any argument, you should keep in mind that it's not just about what you're arguing right now in the moment in those specific circumstances, but it's about understanding that 50 years from now, this same principle is going to be argued on much different circumstances. Uh, we started this podcast with like the abortion debate and in Roe v. Wade, you know, those circumstances of debating what a human life is and, and where abortion should be legal and where it should not and do all that looks vastly different than an abortion argument that is happening this year in the Supreme Court, because society has evolved. And once a, a precedent is set, society moves, you know, once that line and that goalpost moves, what is that going to look like 50 years, 100 years down the road, or even just five or 10 years down the road, all of today's most, many of today's most divisive hot topics are things that many of us could not have imagined that we would be sitting here debating 10 years ago. So have a, a, a big picture perspective on how that works. So in my show notes, I'm going to have a link to the monk debates and which monk debates, if you haven't checked them out, are absolutely fantastic. That New York Times article and the book Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, highly recommend, manageable read. It's an abridged version. And 
that about wraps it up. So I hope you learned something or able to walk away with somewhat of a working knowledge of exactly what socialism is and how it plays in, in, in today's world and where we can find that common ground to have a conversation about appropriate government intervention and understand and remember that everybody would like to see the homeless population disappear. Nobody wants to see people suffering and starve to death and freeze out in the cold or any of those things. We're just talking about the best ways to get there. I don't think anybody's going to sit down and argue that the rich need to get richer and the poor need to get poorer. Everybody would like to live the most successful life possible, just different ways of getting there. There is common ground and there is reasonable discussion. So be able to figure out how to get there and disagree and discuss and have discourse with love and respect.